This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hi, I'm David Ross, and welcome to episode five of The Sun's new podcast, Israel's War on Terror. This week, The Sun's senior reporter, Paul Sims, and our photographer, Dan Charity, spent a day embedded with the IDF in Gaza. That explosion you just heard was the sound of Israeli troops blowing up a missile dump. It was hidden in plain sight by Hamas terror chiefs on the golden sands of a Gaza beach. But as Paul explained, that was just one part of a mind-blowing day on the front line with the Israeli defence forces. So we uh, ended up uh, heading down towards a military base on the border with Gaza. Um, We arrived met with uh, members of the Israeli Defence Force. We were then taken through a number of checkpoints and met up with a unit who took us uh, on the back of a Humvee um, through towards Gaza. Now, it's, it's hard to describe, I'll do my best. You end up driving towards Gaza and there's a huge section of fence that is essentially the, the border and it's just cut open. So we drove through when we entered Gaza, you don't initially see a huge amount. You can see Gaza in distance, but at that stage, it's just a barren wasteland. There are various Israeli troops who have set up, um, uh, best way to describe it is positions. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're armed to the teeth, but they've set up positions. When we were in the Humvee, we were driving towards Gaza and they explained that they'd actually had to create their own road into Gaza because the... Um, the, the, the tracks that were previously there had been heavily booby-trapped by Hamas. So they've created this, own, this this road of their own. So we then headed in towards uh, northern Gaza and it immediately becomes very, very clear that um, it's being raised to the ground. It's like, it's apocalyptic. It's like nothing I've really seen before. So we then get to a rendezvous point where we meet uh, Major uh, Mayan Muller. Uh, who's in charge with uh, this tank division that we were with. So we transferred from the Humvee uh, onto a Puma battle tank. Uh, and from there, that battle tank um, goes into the heart of northern Gaza. It's a place called Shati. Um, 
which is it's, it's an extraordinary thing it's it's on the coast it overlooks the sea it overlooks the mediterranean and um, the further you go in the the buildings that were once there i mean it, it is it is like a seaside resort town or was uh, at the moment certainly after the aerial bombardment from the israeli defense forces and the troops going in it looks like somewhere where there has been a nuclear fallout the buildings are stripped back to their concrete foundations there is rubble as far as the eye can see twisted metal the main high road into into northern gaza into shati you make out the central reservation but only just i mean it's just debris absolutely everywhere so we joined this uh, we, we joined the, the tank division we were taken in there are israeli troops all over the place there are tanks going backwards and forwards this that this like four by four snatch type vehicles when we were in the tank we could see lots of troops uh, milling milling about going from each property all the properties are completely destroyed but what they are looking for desperately looking for are the tunnels it was explained to me in quite a huge amount of detail that the Hamas fighters had managed to make their way to the border completely undetected because they travelled underground through this complex labyrinth of tunnels that had popped them out just before the fence that is essentially the border between Gaza and Israel, uh, and they you know came out of the came out of this tunnel, cut through the cut through the fencing, and launched their their horrific massacre on October the seventh. And whilst you were there, what did the IDF find? What did they show you? So when we when we were there, you were on a, a coastal road and they took us down towards the beach and immediately it doesn't look like a beach. You can see the Mediterranean, but you can't really make out a beach because there is just rubble absolutely everywhere. Um, so they then took us a bit further down. And they said, look, look around you, look around you. Um, th- th- this is a beach. And you get a bit further on and you can see that there's a beach, there are parasols, there are sunbeds. It's clearly a beach that has been used by the local populace. The civilians who live in their local neighborhoods have gone down there to swim and bathe and just you know relax on a Sunday. What was striking, though, is that they then led us only a couple of meters away um, to a shipping container that contained 20 missiles these warheads have a range of between 150 and 200 kilometers and you could see the cones of the warheads just poking out from the compartments that they were in there were five columns four rows and the idf were hooking these missiles up to red wire and to explosives they packed it with 20 kilograms of explosives and they explained while we were there that what Hamas does is places its weaponry within civilian positions. So they use the locals, the residents, the the, the neighbourhood as human shield. So this, it's it's unbelievable, really. This this shipping container is there on the beach, hiding in plain sight, and inside it, unbeknownst to the local populace, there are twenty missiles. Um, that uh, Hamas are stockpiling. So they rigged it up with this red wire. The red wire trailed away uh, to a detonator. Um, We got back on the tank. We moved back at about 
hundred meters or so, not too far, but a safe distance enough. And we watched as they exploded the missile dump and I've never seen anything like it in all honesty. Uh, it was, someone described it as a firework display, but what you saw were projectiles erupting into the air, uh, mainly because they hadn't packed enough explosives into uh, the shipping container. So some of the missiles actually went off. So when you see this explosion, you see the, uh, the, the bits of the rocket just being um, thrown, thrown into the air and debris landing everywhere, fire. Um, and it's been explained to me by the IDF while we were there that their mission is essentially fourfold. They want to expose the tunnel network that Hamas has created and they want to destroy that tunnel network. They want to collect intelligence, which is why they're going from house to house. So they're looking for information that explains how they managed to launch their attack on October the 7th. They also want to cut the head off the snake of Hamas. They want to remove the leadership. And they also want to obviously rescue the hostages that have been captured by Hamas. So as they're going through, they're identifying the weaponry, they're finding munitions all over the place every single day. And the team that we were with, their job was essentially to dis destroy it, disarm it. Uh, and by doing that, you weaken Hamas, you weaken their ability to strike, and you essentially cut the head off the snake. And tell us about the chilling lair that you were taken into and what was what the items that were found there. That uh, seems pretty terrifying. Yeah, so after watching the explosion, missile doubled, being blown up, we were taken back on the tank and we went further into Gaza itself, into northern Gaza. We were approximately about two miles away from Gaza City itself which has seen the most intense fighting in the last few days. And we were led uh, off the uh, off the tank into what used to be a residential street. You couldn't describe it like it anymore because it's been utterly destroyed. We're talking like shells to buildings, no outside exterior walls left. You can see in, you can see that people lived there. You can see couches, sofas, and what have you. And we were taken to a... Uh, an apartment block uh, and to a flat that I think quite opulent um, and it was the home of a battalion commander for Hamas and we were led in the front door had been blown off uh, I presume from one of the airstrikes there was debris absolutely everywhere as as there is just across this barren landscape um, and we were led in and we were told that this this was the home of a battalion leader. They know that this was a battalion leader because they found his epaulets in the property. They also found a bomb-making room at the back of the flat, which is only a few feet away from where the children were sleeping in a bedroom. So the extraordinary scene, if you can picture it, is in one room the children are sleeping. On you know They've got pyjamas on the floor that we could sit there with fireman Sam on. There's a toy ride-along car and there are stickers of Real Madrid players and of Lionel Messi just children's children's bedroom but then just a few feet away in a back room they were making bombs and laid out in front of us were hand grenades uh, RPGs which are rocket propelled grenades, uh, military uniforms walkie talkies there were maps 
most chillingly of all though is that there was a very crude school-like homework-like 3d model and that they strongly believe was one of the kibbutzes that they targeted so this this operation if you want to call it that this horrific attack that they launched was in the planning in for they think up to two years and the detail that they went into was to create these 3d models so that they could identify how best to go through their slaughter i mean it's an extraordinary sight um and like i say extraordinarily chilling in the same way and so you've got you've got these 3d models you've got the maps it's a huge amount of intelligence for the israelis it's you know for for them this is piecing the jigsaw together they're trying to understand how this happened it's very important that they collect all the intelligence because they can start then dismantling hamas better so we then you know you look on the ground and there's I mean, there's TNT, there's plastic explosives, there's fuses, uh, there's you know, a huge amount of um, weaponry. And a lot of it is homemade. We're talking, there's stuff that they used on October the 7th, 80% of it was homemade. And what they do is they place themselves, this is what the Israelis say, they place themselves within residential communities. So you look out through these walls that have been removed from the airstrikes and you can see that people lived here, people walked the streets, and in their midst were Hamas terrorists. And, and it, it, it's, it's essentially the perfect cover. They used the residential streets and the, the, the civilians nearby as, as, as human shields so that they could conduct and carry out the plan for October the 7th. The Sun's Paul Sims there speaking. Of- hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Bad his day embedded with IDF troops in Gaza. Well, how is Israel's operation to wipe out the Hamas terror group progressing? And with claims from the Palestinian Authority that it could be ready to assume responsibilities in Gaza. What will happen when Israel decides its military mission has been successful? Earlier I spoke with Ambassador Mark Regev, a senior advisor to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, to get an insight into the government's latest thinking. We're making good progress, but we're not there yet. Uh, the goal of our operation is to dismantle Hamas's military machine, and to uh, dismantle in parallel its political structure in Gaza that allows it to, to rule the Gaza Strip. So our goals are uh, expansive. Our goals will take time to implement. This won't be over soon. For, for some of our critics, whatever we do will be insufficient. But let's just, uh, uh, let's just go through what has been done. For over three weeks now, we've been uh, um, suggesting, urging, the people of northern Gaza to move out of the areas in, in northern Gaza where we expected, and there is today, heavy fighting. We didn't want to see civilians caught up in the crossfire, and therefore we were urging them to relocate south for the duration of the conflict. Uh, they have done so in their hundreds of thousands. Over 800,000 have moved south, and uh, uh, that's good. Get them out of harm's way. 
we don't want to see them caught up in the crossfire between the Israeli Defense Forces and the Hamas terrorists. Um, Hamas, on the other hand, has, has been uh, saying the opposite. They've been saying, don't go, stay, uh, uh, become martyrs for our crazy cause. Uh, they've also not just done that in words, but they've put up physical roadblocks and at gunpoint prevented people from fleeing. That just shows the difference, I think, between Israel and Hamas on these issues. It's almost as if Israel cares much more about the fate of Gaza civilians than does Hamas, who's willing to have them all die. You know, in normal countries like uh, Britain, Israel, uh, the, the job of the military is to protect the civilians. Uh, Hamas inverts that. For Hamas, the job of the civilians is to protect their terrorist machine, and, and they do so ruthlessly. Uh, in the last few days, when the fighting has become very intensive in Gaza City, we've nonetheless allowed a humanitarian corridor to allow people who want to leave to leave. And you saw the pictures, I'm sure, from yesterday where we saw people leaving uh, uh, the city. It's actually interesting that there are still people there who want to leave who couldn't leave. Uh, and I think maybe that's a part of the success of our operation, that we are destroying Hamas's political control. And as a result, people who maybe were prevented from leaving in the past are now leaving uh, today. That's a good thing. Do you sense that there is a tide of change in Gaza amongst its civilian population that they are then turning against Hamas and some of that fear may be lifting? Maybe, but there's uh, 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 Hamas still can has control. I mean, no, you'll notice that in all the interviews given by, by people in Gaza, not one will criticize Hamas. And that's because, of course, the Gaza, Gaza is not a democracy. Gaza is run by an authoritarian a ruthless terrorist group. And we saw what sort of barbarity it can meet out on October 7th when they butchered our people. So uh, the people of Gaza know the brutality that Hamas is capable of, and they're very careful. I mean, I haven't seen a single interview of, of someone in Gaza, and a lot of people have been interviewed, and none of them will mention Hamas or criticize Hamas. It's the same with the pictures coming out of Gaza. They have the ability to control the message because a photographer, a Gazan photographer who takes a picture that's not to Hamas's liking, uh, will face retribution. But I think as this goes on, we'll see uh, Hamas's control over the population uh, 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 diminish until it ends, and that'll be a good thing. I mean, ultimately, Hamas has been ruling the Gaza Strip for 16 years, and what have they got to show for it? What have the people of Gaza got from them? Poverty, uh, uh, bloodshed, pain, suffering, I mean, Hamas's road is uh, literally a dead end. And when this is over and uh, Hamas is eliminated and there's a new leadership in the Gaza Strip, I mean, obviously that's good for my country. My, my, my people in southern Israel will no longer have to live in fear uh, of terrorists crossing the border in the middle of the night and butchering their children. But uh, uh, the people of Gaza will ultimately maybe have a hope for a better future because they'll have a government that will maybe, hopefully, uh, worry about their well-being more than Hamas does. It's obviously a battle on the ground, but there's also a PR war that's going on with propaganda from Hamas at every opportunity. They've come out with a, a death toll figure, the Gaza Health Ministry, uh, which is run by Hamas, of 10,000. What do you know to be the truth of that figure and of the figure what do you know in terms of combatants versus civilians? So I have to tell you that we don't know what we don't know. Uh, we just recently revised the number of dead Israelis from the October 7th attack because you're always getting new information. And these things, of course, are fluid. As you learn something more, you find out this person was taken hostage and not killed and so forth and so on. 
we still have in Israel a, a large amount of bodies that remain un unidentified because they were burned so badly. Uh, we had to call in archaeologists to help us identify some of these people. Terrible, terrible sights. Uh, but in Gaza, there, there are no such qualms. The Hamas-controlled, as you said correctly, the Hamas-controlled Ministry of Health puts out its numbers, and they uh, have no problem about, uh, you know, they're very sure of their numbers. They want you to believe their numbers, and it's clear that they have a, an interest to exaggerate, and they have an interest uh, to, uh, to only talk about civilians, that have you believe that amongst the, the number of casualties in Gaza, they're all civilians. And that is reinforced by their control over the visual image. We haven't seen in Western media a single picture of an injured or dead Hamas fighter in Gaza, only of innocent civilians. They're the pictures they want you to see. Uh, now, to the second part of your question, which is about the, you know how many people have we killed and so forth, once again, we can only give you rough estimates. But I can tell you this. There were similar conflicts uh, that Britain was involved in. Um, there was the fight uh, uh, against ISIS in Mosul. There was also the fight uh, in Fallujah, similar in that they were you had a terrorist group. In, in the Iraqi case, it was ISIS, but uh, a terrorist group that had taken control of a, a built-up urban area. And in both those fights, uh, justified fights, uh, uh, it, was, it, was, it was necessary to defeat ISIS and destroy their control of those cities. But in those, the framework of those conflicts, there were also civilians who were killed, who were caught up in the crossfire. And I think Israel is doing, I don't want to say a better job, but we're at least doing, I think we've gone on, on a number of steps, giving people the time to leave, making a maximum effort to distinguish between combatants and non-combatants, between the terrorists and the civilians. I think we're doing uh, uh, almost an unprecedented job in trying to safeguard civilians. But let's remember the bottom line. ISIS had the civilian population of of. Fallujah and Mosul, and they kept them as human shields, and, and the West nevertheless decided ISIS could not have immunity. Despite uh, we, uh, the tragic death of civilians, we cannot allow ISIS to have immunity. Well, it's the same with Hamas. Every loss of civilian life is a tragedy, but we can't allow Hamas to have immunity. Giving Hamas immunity means Hamas will stay alive, it will uh, rest, regroup, re-energize, and attack us again. And that's just a recipe for more violence and bloodshed further down the line. We've got to finish the job now. How confident are you that that message is getting through and the double standard that's often applied to Israel uh, ebbs away? Are you feeling that there has been a, a sea change in, in any attitudes? Well, with some people are never convinced, yes. But I have to tell you that we've seen an important change in the elite opinion in governments across the Western world, whether it's uh, President Biden in uh, uh, Britain, in the United States, or, or, or Rishi Sunak in, in the United Kingdom, uh, whether it's leadership across Europe, uh, we've seen people uh, endorse what we're saying, which is that Hamas must be dismantled, uh, that we cannot have this terror enclave on our southern border, that Israel will and must, has a duty to defend its people, an obligation to protect its people, and to act against this terrible terrorist organization. I, I, I want to stress something. There were uh, a story today in uh, the New York Times. Uh, the Hamas people talk about their desire for permanent war against Israel. The deputy leader of Hamas said a few days ago to a, a, a Lebanese television station, he said they would do October, 11, uh, October 7th again and again and again. There, there's no ceasefire with these people. These people 
are ruthless, brutal killers. And just as there wasn't a ceasefire with Al-Qaeda or with ISIS, there can't be a ceasefire with Hamas. There's no substitute for victory. And I am sure victory will come. And when that victory comes, how confident are you that we can see the return of the hostages that were taken on October 7th? So I can't be 100% confident because we know who we're dealing with. We're dealing with a brutal, ruthless terror organization that has no qualms at all about killing innocent people. And uh, so I can't be 100% confident we'll see all the 240 hostages alive. That's a sad reality. And, and it must be remembered of, of the 240 hostages, there are 30 children, of them babies and infants. I mean, what sort of warped minds take babies hostage, take infants hostage? They are deprived Hamas, and they have to be called for what they are. Who takes babies and children hostage? It's crazy. So we have no illusions about who they are and what they're capable of. But what I can say is this. We believe that by beefing up the pressure on Hamas, by ratcheting up the pain that they are receiving, uh, that's the best way to get our people out. Because Hamas aren't suddenly going to become humanitarians and release the hostages. But Hamas, if they understand that they're under massive pressure, and that massive pressure is only getting worse, then we could well see movement on the hostage issue. Away from the, the hostages, a lot of the criticism uh, heading towards Israel has been around the subject of humanitarian aid. Could you clear up how exactly aid comes into Gaza, how it has been increasing since the war, and whether you think that the world has a fair representation of what the actual aid situation is on the ground. So I have no doubt that there is hardship in Gaza. War is always hard. And people have left their homes to avoid the fighting and they're in temporary conditions and it's not easy. But we've been working with the international community to create a, a zone, a safe zone in the southern Gaza Strip, not far from the coast. And because it's in the southern part of the Gaza Strip, it's close to the crossings with Egypt. And as a result, the aid is coming in, can go directly to that. Israel has said we've got no problem at all with uh, food and medicine and fresh drinking water coming in from Egypt to reach evacuated population. And because they're close to the Mediterranean coast, the French are bringing a, a hospital ship. Others can do the same. The Egyptians have established a field hospital uh, uh, on their side of the frontier for, for injured people. And so the idea is, uh, in Israel's perspective, to continue unabatedly the campaign against Hamas's military machine, and at the same time, in parallel, to make a maximum effort to see humanitarian aid receive Gaza, uh, uh, be received by Gaza's civilians. And how much of a misunderstanding do you think there is in terms of what Israel provides typically to Gaza in a time where there isn't a war going on? I believe it's a certain percentage that uh, Israel supplies in terms of water, but I think maybe there's some confusion that uh, Israel is responsible for a lot more, typically. So you're right. I mean, Israel left the Gaza Strip in 2005. We took down all the settlements. The settlers who didn't want to agree, we, we forced them to leave. The police came and took them out, and we pulled back behind the 1967 line, the Armistice Line, which for the international community is the, the recognized uh, border. And, and there's no reason at all for this conflict between Israel and Gaza. None whatsoever. It's only because of Hamas. We should have a good, peaceful relationship with the people of Gaza. But once again, 
Hamas is against that, is opposed to any sort of peace and so forth. After leaving Gaza, we still had relationships where people could come and work in Israel and, and water and electricity was supplied and so forth. But the thing in Israel today is, is now different. Uh, following this terrible attack, uh, the feeling is that we want to totally disengage from Gaza. The idea that people from Gaza will come and work in Israel, that's not acceptable to Israelis anymore. The, the attitude is, uh, okay, maybe good fences will make good neighbors. You say that Israel wants to disengage from, from Gaza, but when Hamas is, is taken down, Presumably, there will be a security system in place that involves Israel, at least for a, for a certain period of time. That's, that's 100% for sure. We can't make the mistake that was made by others that you, you win the war and then you lose the peace, right? We can't just sort of go in there and, and destroy Hamas and then leave. Uh, well, Hamas could well come back, uh, other terrorists, other extremist groups. So while we don't want to reoccupy Gaza, we don't want to rule Gaza, we don't want to govern the people of Gaza, we're happy for them to do that by themselves or in the framework of some sort of international agreed to mechanism. We will keep overriding security control, uh, at least at the beginning. That doesn't have to mean a military occupation. It could be fluid. It could be Israelis going in and out to meet with problems when they arise. But the idea that Israel can just ignore what goes on in the Gaza Strip is, is obviously a non-starter. Uh, we would do so at our own peril. And once again, the most important thing to understand is that the Israeli public, the Israeli people, will not stand for what was the reality before October 7th. We will not stand for having a terrorist-controlled enclave on our southern border and, and that can launch the sort of barbaric and ferocious attacks that we saw on October 7th. We, it, that threat will be eliminated. And as you take on Hamas, how concerned are you about the threat from Lebanon and Hezbollah because fighting on two fronts would complicate the situation. It would indeed, and we, we want to avoid that. Uh, our, our policy is deterrence in the north and victory in the south. But we have to be prepared for an escalation in the north. Uh, we don't want it, but uh, we don't know what Hezbollah's plans are, and we have to be prepared to meet that. Now, Israel has fought two-front wars in the past. Anyone who knows the history of my country knows that we fought a two-front war in 67 and in 73. In both, we were victorious, and we can do it again. And I would say to Hezbollah, you know, Hamas took us by surprise on October 7th, and we played a terrible, horrific price in blood for our mistake, that they, they surprised us, that we weren't ready for them. But in the north, the Israeli army is already mobilized. Our troops are ready. We're following the situation closely. They will not surprise us. Hezbollah will not surprise us the way Hamas did. And if they start an all-out war, we will be ready to respond immediately, and decisively. I hope, I hope calm minds prevail in Beirut and that Hezbollah doesn't make such a mistake. But if they do, they will pay a price that they will wish that they never had started with Israel. And Mark, you, you mentioned being taken by surprise earlier. When are we likely to see an investigation about what went wrong and what enabled Hamas to carry out the attack that they did? So, so you're right, and there will be such investigations. In Israel, we have a history after there have been defense setbacks and, and other uh, national security lapses and uh, even disasters. We've had uh, special commissions of inquiries. We've had parliamentary investigations. Uh, we did so after the 1973 war, which, which was also an intelligence failure. that They attacked us by surprise. It was after the 2006 war in Lebanon, where there was a feeling that the, we had made too many mistakes. And I'm, sh I'm sure, I'm positive we'll have some sort of investigation when this is over. 
and everyone from the prime minister down uh, the, the the system will will be asked questions and will have to have be held accountable for for what they did and what they didn't do and with iran being the puppet masters of, of these terror groups is there a long-term plan for tehran if we and we will destroy hamas uh, that's one of uh, Iran's most uh, dangerous uh, tentacles will have been destroyed. And uh, it's crucial that Hamas receives a resounding defeat, yes, because then all of Iran's allies in the region, the Houthis in, in Yemen and the, uh, the Hezbollah in Lebanon and the different groups in Iraq and Syria and, and the Iranians themselves, that'll be an important message, uh, that if you attack us, if you're aggression, you will pay a price. And, you know, the, the secret thing that's not on the news so much is but the Arab world, Arab leaderships who are talking to us directly and others who are talking to us indirectly, they tell us you have to win against Hamas decisively because by doing so, you're fighting against the axis of terror headed by Iran and we can't allow them to win. Ambassador Mark Regev, who is a senior advisor to Benjamin Netanyahu, that brings an end to episode 5 of Israel's War on Terror. Please let us know in the comments if you have any questions you'd like us to answer, and we'll do our best to take them on in later episodes. You can now search for more episodes wherever you typically get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>